welcome to the ENA Conference on Demand podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Dan Campana, Senior Manager for PR and Communications with ENA, here in Pittsburgh with Joyce Forsman Capuzzi. Welcome. Thank you. Um, we're here to talk a little bit about your week in Pittsburgh and some of the sessions that you uh, presented here as part of Emergency Nursing 2018. Uh, before we get to those, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your history in emergency nursing, mm. and uh, your relationship with ENA over the years? Well, thank you for the warm welcome, first of all, and it's great to have been here. It has been a terrific week. Um, I've been an emergency nurse for well over 20 years, and I have been a member of the ENA for the last, um, well, I'm going to give away, actually, (laughs) (laughs) much longer than 20 years. Um, I've been a member of the ENA uh, in a very active role for the last 15 years. There was a period of time right after I had... um, become a nurse, that I had joined the Emergency Nurses Association as well, but I had let that lapse and um, initially thought that there wasn't value in being a member of the ENA. And then as I became wiser and uh, began to network more with ENA colleagues, I realized the value of being a member of the ENA, and there's no way I would let that lapse now. And one of the great member benefits, obviously, is conference and emergency nursing 2018 and previous years. How many years have you been coming to conference? I have been coming to conference since uh, when ENA was in Philadelphia, and I can't remember when that was. But when definitely, uh, it's been about 10 years. Now, I don't make it every year. Okay. Um, there's various uh, personal, professional things that impact that. Sure. But I certainly do like to be a part of it when I can be. And presenting is certainly a very prominent part of that. How many years have you presented in the past? Uh, Well, I've been presenting um, not just with ENA, but I've been presenting for the last uh, 15 years or so. And um, I find a lot of uh, enjoyment in that. It satisfies both my right and left brain. Um, So there's an element of creativity that I get to use, as well as the science of always basing everything on evidence. Okay. So along those lines, you're here this week, um, and you presented three times. Why don't you tell us the names of the three topics that you presented? So I did the edge of death, uh, what every ED nurse should know about non-fatal strangulation. I presented Winnie the Pooh, R-N-C-E-N, and I presented Peds Needs. Okay. So, you know, talking about conference on demand, obviously, this is an opportunity for people who weren't able to join with Mm. us uh, to get a chance to be a part of it virtually so that they can... Learn, what, learn from you just the same way as people in the room do. Uh, what, what do you enjoy about presenting in the first place? Let's kind of touch on that real briefly. Well, it's certainly, for one thing, from a personal standpoint, it keeps me on my toes in that I don't become complacent and think that what I learned uh, two years ago will carry me over into um, being current. So um, it allows me to constantly read and grow in, in that way. I also... Um, As a clinical nurse specialist and as a clinical nurse educator, I love to teach. I love when the light bulb comes on and everybody gets an aha moment, and I can see that um, concepts and principles, whether they're easy to understand or hard to understand, are starting to resonate with the the listener. So I think that... um, because I, that's just part of my DNA is being a teacher as well as a nurse, 
um, I really uh, get that satisfaction in terms of being able to pass on a little piece of my knowledge because it then becomes exponential. Sure. Someone else will listen to this podcast and get conference on demand and then tell someone else maybe in a huddle or at a staff meeting and then more people learn and then it just grows from Exponentially. there. Totally exponential. So one of the things that makes for a great presentation is a, a teacher or a presenter who is passionate about their topics. Uh, two topics I want to focus on with you. Uh, let's start with the edge of death. Mm. Uh, obviously, um, violence in general, workplace violence is a big issue for nurses, but you see plenty of domestic violence and issues for patients that come in. Um, tell me a little bit about generally about what, um, what your passion is on this particular topic, and then we'll get into a little bit about what, um, what you presented to our audience here this week. Great, thank you. I think there's always an impetus for what I choose to pick, and every year I develop new topics on which to speak. And um, you had mentioned that workplace violence is, you know, certainly something that we're trying to eliminate. And um, two years ago, one of my young um, nurse residents, not my young nurse resident, but a nurse resident that I work with, um, was strangled by a patient. Mm. And she was still in her first year of nursing, and it was very surprising to me how it was not taken quite as seriously because from all appearances, from the moment the the uh, perpetrator, the patient, let go of um, her neck, uh, everyone said, oh, she looks like she's fine. But what we know about strangulation is that there are a lot of hidden things that go on uh, physiologically and anatomically. And so I knew she wasn't fine. So, um, you know, certainly it, it can be workplace violence related, as in the case of um, my young colleague, but also it is heavily um, heavily uh, supported by what we know about domestic violence. And I think that there have been some misconceptions in emergency nursing um, that typically we'll see a certain sign or symptom and that will then lead us down the path of we need to look at strangulation. But what we know uh, with non-fatal strangulation is that there's signs and symptoms only in about 50%. So 50% of the patients that would present to us with this just don't have those things that are going to scream to us, check this patient out for strangulation. So the top of the name of your your um, your presentation was Edge of Death Principles of Non-Fatal Strangulation Every ED Nurse Should Know. So what are some of the key things that they should know? Also, given the the fact that um, intimate partner violence and domestic violence are tricky enough on their own, but when you're dealing with some of these hidden signs of strangulation, so start with some of the things that ED nurses should know about non-fatal strangulation, and then we can talk a little bit about uh, the idea of how you even get to that point when sure. you know that there are some barriers in working with patients who sure. are victims of domestic violence. That's such a great question, and I can give you some of the nuggets that certainly um, I presented as well as came up um, in discussion or questions after the topic this week. And one of them is that... Um, we have the opportunity as emergency nurses to not just educate our own, but also to educate our EMS partners, our police partners, dispatch, um, those colleagues as well, because very often, you know, the chain of, of emergency care begins there, and they don't have um, the recognition as often we don't either, they think, oh, the patient is talking, they're fine, or I don't see anything, they're fine, or even the patient themselves downplays something. Sure. And as a result, the everyone sort of anchors on the fact that the patient says they're fine, 
and sort of stops there and doesn't continue to critically think about what some of those anatomical or physiological changes are. Sure. So that's one nugget. I'd say another one would be, uh, I think for the last several years, as this topic has been sort of uh, percolating a little bit, I think that we all have thought that if we see petechiae, those small, flat, red marks that don't blanch and um, are uh, and are small blood vessels that have burst on the skin, um, I think we've thought that if we see that petechiae, that that usually is an indicator. But very often, as I said, 50% of the, the time, we don't see any um, signs or symptoms in the patient. And therefore, um, if we do see petechiae, it usually means that it, it has been a very violent um, struggle that the patient has had with the perpetrator. Because if you think about it, it takes about 30 seconds of, um, of venous congestion to make the uh, petechiae appear. So one of the challenges is the patient's going to struggle as they're being strangled. So typically there'll be a lot of squeezing and releasing. And therefore, there wouldn't be at least 30 seconds of continuous pressure. If you see petechiae, it has been so violent that that patient has experienced 30 seconds of continuous uh, pressure. So it, it is probably um, one of the signs, I would say, would, which would be the most understood. The other, um, the other highlight, I would say, from this is that we have to remember that this is not just an airway issue. I think sometimes we have the misnomer of calling it choking, but it's not. Choking would be if I had something obstructing my throat. Sure. And even newspapers report the patient was choked, or um, I saw one report Heather Locklear was choked by her ex-boyfriend. It was in the paper, and I have it in the presentation, which obviously that's not the case. So strangulation involves not just airway issues, but also compression of the great vessels. So there's lack of blood flow to the brain, and there's lack of blood flow out of the brain, which then causes some of those um, sequelae that we're going to see. And the last nugget I would say is that there's um, very often a delayed reaction. Okay. So sometimes we don't see some of the signs or symptoms till 24 to 36 hours, and even a couple weeks after the fact. Okay. When, uh, when you pr presented this, obviously you presented this many times, you know, and you interact with the audience, they're very curious. Are they, and and which, which side do you think you typically see more from? Is it, is it more about the clinical side of it, or is it just about sort of the the initial recognition that they need to think a little bit deeper about the topic? I think it's, the, and that's such a great, great question. Um, I think that it's initial recognition that um, folks uh, have the questions about because um, even when we talk about how fast a person can go into cardiac arrest and that typically once this patient who has been strangled goes into cardiac arrest, they're not um, resuscitatable. So it's sort of those questions that, um, that keep coming up. Um, but I spoke to an EMS, um, state EMS group uh, two weeks ago, and they had a lot of questions about um, some things that they've seen in nursing homes. So that's another reason that I really love sharing information is that I get a lot of good information back um, as well as hopefully disseminating some information. Education is a two-way street it a lot of times. It is, yes. So the other topic that uh, we want to talk about here, uh, PEDS needs, tips and tricks for caring for our pediatric patients. Um, sort of a different level of um, energy and anxiety that comes with pediatric oh, patients. Oh, my goodness, yeah. 
Um, talk about a little bit about your, your passion for pediatric patients. It may seem sort of common sense that your youngest, most vulnerable patients are the ones that everybody gets most engaged in, but what, what is your interest and in how has pediatrics been a part of your career? Well, I can't remember a time where I wasn't uh, learning or teaching or growing um, in some form of pediatrics, and I have had some amazing pediatric mentors over the course of my, my career. And um, it sort of is one of those building blocks where, um, you know, I did one thing which led to something else, which led to something else, and ENA has given me the opportunity to really... Um, grow leaps and bounds with my interest in pediatrics because um, there's so many different opportunities that ENA has in order to have someone get involved. Um, but as far as my love of taking care of children, um, I think that's just something that was instilled in me. I had great parents that modeled really great, um, great interaction with all types of people and certainly kiddos. But uh, there is a, as you described, an energy that is with pediatrics, and I sort of equate it to firemen would run in when everyone else is running out, sure. and typically in an ER, you see who is running towards the peds patient and who is running away like, oh, I've got to stock my rooms today, sure. um, and really don't want to have that encounter. So my goal is to make everyone at least run towards the peds patient, even if that population isn't their passion. So tips and tricks, um, are we talking about sort of the day-to-day -day injuries or are we the full breadth of from the kid that falls out of a tree all the way up to a child that may be involved in a serious motor vehicle accident or unfortunately some more you know extreme level of violence? Um, tell us about what some of the tips and tricks are and how they apply to those different scenarios. So this is a really fast-paced lecture. Okay. And, um, we don't stay on one topic for very long, okay. and it is tips and tricks, things that are going to make the parent, the patient, and the caregiver feel better about the care so that's being holistic. done. more holistic. It's not just the patient. It's very the people holistic. the support network that are there with them. Yes. But go ahead. Yeah. So if you, let's say, for example, um, you're not real sure how to give a particular oral medication, and I think of an, an oral steroid, uh, very um, unpleasant taste to the patient, but if the if the um, physician or provider says that you can um, give them a popsicle, then that numbs the taste buds enough that you may be able to get that in. Okay. Or the patient, uh, we all know how much we um, love boppies, those uh, cushions that sort of support an infant, um, but we don't have boppies in the ER, but how do you make your own boppy um, <laughs> in the ER so that you have a way to sort of cradle that, that infant while they're on the stretcher? So um, very fast-paced. It's basically um, lots of uh, rules of thumb, and um, for example, how do you know what size uh, suction catheter to go down an endotracheal tube. Well, it's always two times the size of the endotracheal tube. So if you put in a four endotracheal tube, you're going to use an eight French suction catheter. So just lots of little nuggets that you, um, someone uh, can typically walk away from uh, in order to be able to provide superior care to everybody. So there's a little bit of maybe confidence building here. If some people are maybe don't have a lot of exposure to working with pediatric patients, does this help them gain a little bit more confidence because they're understanding maybe it's not as scary as it seems to work with somebody who is smaller or more delicate? That's that's such a great way to put it, Dan, absolutely. And I think one of the things that gives someone confidence is having a diversion kit right at their fingertips. And so I describe some of the things that you can put in a diversion kit because if the 
we know for one thing that play is the work of the child. That is absolutely foundational. And I do believe that it was Mr. Rogers who said that. And we are in Pittsburgh, and Mr. <laughs> Rogers was from Pittsburgh. So that's a better segue than anything I could have written here. So that's that's perfect to tie those things together. So we we know that play is the work of the child. So having a diversion kit makes everything easier. And when you have that diversion kit, and most of the items that you can put in it, you can get at a dollar store. Um, and whether it's bubbles or whether it's a pinwheel, you can use uh, you can put cotton balls in it because um, you know if if you have a cotton ball race across a tray table and the child has to try and blow it you can do some assessment of breath sounds that way so having that um, that diversion kit I think is one of the things that is one of the big takeaways from that topic so there's a, a little bit of comfort as well as the clinical side it sounds like yes sometimes you have to do a little bit on the front end in terms of setting things up and gaining that confidence with the child and developing that element of um, being playful um, even if they're very sick uh, now you certainly in the child who's critical you're not going to be blowing bubbles sure. but um, but you know, looking at that particular patient and their scenario, that might be putting the effort in on the front end um, will pay off in great dividends on the back end because you've let the parent know that you're invested in their child, you've let the child know that um, you're kind of on their level, and then you're like, phew, you know, <laughs> I got through that particular pediatric patient. And you mentioned parents. Um they're obviously in a very delicate state. Mm. You know, nobody wants to be taking their child into to an ED. But so what are some of the things that in terms of, um, I don't want to use the word managing in a, in, a, in a negative way, but in managing the parents in a situation like that or the caregivers in that situation because they want answers and they want their child to be healed as quickly as possible. So you've got a bit of a dual focus there. So what are some of the things you talk about in terms of working with the parents in those situations? Well, I think... Um, and, and we do have another session here this that we had this week on um, using one voice, and there, uh, I believe it's called POP. Um, and the sort of I'm going to be the voice that speaks on behalf of the hospital staff in order to um, not have a lot of confusion and a lot of people talking, I think that goes a long way uh, for the parent. I think even something like um, making that that. Uh, item the, that looks like a boppy um, lets the parent know that you're willing to do whatever is necessary within reason sure. to provide comfort for their child and then that in turn provides uh, that comfort that you're really investing you're not just rushing in and um, doing something and not approaching the child from the developmental or age level that they are. Well, very good. So, uh, Joyce, uh, I appreciate you sharing a little bit of, you know, I know you worked hard to bring these presentations here and you spent a lot of time working with your audiences to, to go through these presentations. So I appreciate you taking some time for us to talk a little bit about, in particular, the edge of death principles of non-fatal strangulation every ED nurse should know, as well as the PEDS needs, tips and tricks for caring for our pediatric patients, uh, both of which are available through Conference on Demand. So Joyce, once again, I thank you for your time today, and I hope you enjoyed your time in Pittsburgh. Oh, it was great. We got a lot of fun things done, and um, thank you for having me, Dan. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And we'll see you in Austin next year? I would hope so. <laughs> I'm actually playing around with that idea. <laughs> well, very good. Uh, that's Dan Campana from Pittsburgh, and be sure to check out Joyce's presentations with Conference on Demand.
For more information on ENA Conference On Demand, visit the ENA website at ena.org slash on demand.